Hello and welcome to Super Urbanism, the podcast that dances about architecture. My name is Tim Abrahams. This week we are talking to Amin Taha, who I think is one of the most talented, one of the most thoughtful architects around. He's in a little world of his own, in a good way. I remember Austin Williams, the series editor of Styles, one of the projects that Machine Books published, invited Amin to contribute next to classical, gothic, etc. Amin opted for no style. He touches on some of the reasons behind this in our conversation, but his argument, I'm going to rudely paraphrase it in a way he'd probably disapprove of, but his argument was that style is pretty much a construct of academia and it inhibits virtuosity. And by virtuosity, I mean a, a unique and particular engagement with material and structure. Amin took me to see his latest work at 8 Bleeding Heart Yard, one of London's most London addresses, not far from his office in Clerkenwell. It's a fascinating project which presents the ghost of a previous building, deals with our fascination with history in a manner we've learned to expect from Amin. Knowledgeable, engaged, ironic. There's a whole strain of work by group work, the practice that Amin is a leading member of, which runs alongside their perhaps better-known exploration of stone as a load-bearing structural material. This other strain explores this idea of a false history, and that's what we ended up talking about, the lies we tell ourselves about our collective past and how we live with them. Oh, we're going right to the top. We saw downstairs, which is the concrete frame of the building, yeah. 1970s. We left the single skin brick in place, but we removed the single glazed aluminium frame windows. We then put super insulation on the outside of the brick. That left us millimetres to play with for a new facade. So we used the perforated mesh as the facade. But instead of leaving it plain, we articulated it. But I'll get onto that in a minute. Concrete frame. The late 60s, early 70s building removed eight separate buildings which dated from Georgian period to the arts and crafts. Cleared them all up because they're all different levels to make nice clean floor plates for the post-war period. But also land demand wasn't as much in the post-war period. London lost quite a large part of its population plus the impetus was to get workers out of the centre of London. So consequently they took up about two-thirds of the site. A third of the site was just left empty for the chairman's car park, facing Bleeding Heart Yard. Okay. When we were looking at it, two architects had really had a go at getting a, an approval for a roof extension. And the response from planners was, it's already an ugly building, you're just making it uglier. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so we dug into the history and said, okay, there were eight buildings here originally. Some of them were taller than the 1970s building. They all have different characters, different natures, plus the footprint was much larger. Roofscape and footprint was larger. For Tyler, the developer, his reward, as it were, is that we're doubling the net internal area by going sideways and upwards. Okay? But then how do you persuade planners this is going to be achieved when they've already told two architects we don't want to? But you reintegrate that history, you bring that history back, so you, there's, a, there's a story there, as it were, of saying, look, we've lost this, let's regain it. But let's not regain it in a, an apparently authentic, in quotation marks, manner as in rebuild it in brick and apparently with the same lime mortar and the same timber frame windows, single skin of brick and all the rest of it. Let's remember and also suggest a criticism of the idea of nostalgia because obviously people, conservation officers especially, 
And when people are asked, what would you like to see here, and we have to do our consultation, why can't we just have what was here back? Look at the street, it's been ruined by this, this post-war stuff. And that's the criticism of that sort of nostalgia, is that you strip away everything that was at the background of making those buildings, how they operated, who worked there, and the conditions they worked on, the life of that period. So, in other words, it's a sort of false memory. It's a sort of statue on a pedestal. We memory. can talk about your false memories later. Okay. <laughs> what we're looking at, where are we? So we extended the building, ultimately, physically, in cross-laminated timber. And on a practical level, it's an existing concrete frame with existing foundations. You don't want to go up in concrete because suddenly the foundations are having to get heavier. You have to underpin. So what do you do? Lightweight materials such as timber. The great thing about timber, obviously, it's also carbon sequestrating. So if you say, okay, philosophically, everything new will be a different material and visibly different. It's timber, it's lighter weight, it goes timber to the side, timber at the top. So everything new is, is visibly the, the new material. So I only, I've only seen it street level. What does this look like from outside? Does this look like timber from outside? No. Okay, so it's mesh on the outside. And is this kind of double height space sitting on top of the, of the, of the old concrete um, deck? And the columns? Oh, yeah. Are they extended concrete or are they timber? No, that's timber. So this would have been the chairman's car park on the ground floor, as it were, yeah? And then space above, just air above. And so this obviously these still yes, support? exactly. Still that needed foundations at that end, yeah. And is that concrete? Timber and then ground floor. There's some concrete there around the... Terrible, just terrible. Yeah. Had to get concrete. Killing the planet with your concrete. Doesn't matter how many trees you use. Um, Great. Um, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just teasing you. We found surveys in the London Archive of the buildings just before they were demolished, because clearly somebody appreciated them and thought, I need to make a record of this. We elevated the facade and then remodelled it in 3D and put it across the, the 70s building. And found, that's where we found some of it was slightly taller, some of it was slightly shorter. And then, of course, the floor line, the whole point of demolishing them was that none of the floor levels had matched up uh, and, uh, and the windows had all been in the wrong place. So we, of course, obviously manipulated it just for practical purposes and then deliberately played with some of the um, entablatures and keystones and turned them upside down or slipped them. And when you were working on it, did you have an idea of the kind of client? You mean occupant? Yeah. It's a speculative office, so it could take anyone. Is there any differentiation in the type of space? Yeah, yeah. So up here, obviously, it's a bit more dramatic, double height. Downstairs, uh, it's all timber. We celebrated the fact that it's all timber. You don't need to do anything to it apart from put a cliff varnish as a fire retardant to the surface for spread of flame. And while downstairs, we, we took away lots of petitions and suspended ceilings, etc. So what did you do to the this lovely concrete gritty comms here? Clean them up, sandblast them, the old left in place. I feel that it's just, and then obviously we left it that in place and just put the insulation on the outside of that. Right. So li little intervention as it were. Extended it out. Exactly. So the floors are pretty much the same after this. Um, let's go to the ground floor. Where yeah. They've cut part of the floor plate. Let's go. They slice through the floor plate. We did the original plans for this, but mm. the fit-out company came in and did, did it for Julius Baer. Did you have the cut-out in Yes, you? absolutely. This is the concept for them, because they decided to take the whole building. Originally, they were only going to take the office floors above and leave these as let-out to restaurants and uh, shop fronts facing the street. 
for them then decided actually why don't we have the concept of a cafe restaurant that we take all our clients to on the ground floor keep them all on the ground floor and mezzanine and then we just have the office staff above them so they decided to take this cut a hole in clients come in here they sit down have a coffee maybe some, some food in each one of these rooms on the ground floor and above is like a private suite for clients and Julius Bear staff. Should we have a quick tour yeah, yeah. around the edge? Yeah, yeah. Have you got everything? So that's at the street. So Greville Street, that yeah. end. You probably looked at different materials by which you could yeah. weave your deceit. Yeah. <laughs> Did you uh, consider other options? You've probably seen the other one, haven't we? Upper Street was um, sort of terracotta mix. So a twin wall tied together and it became the structure, the superstructure. This is the reverse. The superstructure is the timber, the insulation, and then this is suspended and it's a skin. And if you look carefully, the skin doesn't hit the ground. And the purpose of it not hitting the ground is that you quickly understand this is not load-bearing. So from a distance, you're coming up from the station. It looks established and peripheral vision. It's old and existing. And as you get closer and closer, you'll suddenly see the sky through its chimneys and roofscape and other details. Clearly, it's not solid and established. And you might be, if, you're, if you've got the time, intrigued to find out what it's made of. And as you get closer, and you realize, aha, it's just millimeter of skin. Yeah. It is permanence just melts away into air. <laughs> <laughs> and tell me about the material. So this is perforated aluminium sheet with a polyester powder coat and you know, another finish to rough it up a bit so it's not just a monochrome. Other materials we were looking at were brass, self-finished, but ultimately these things go out to tender to main contractors, first and second tier contractors, and they have their supply chain in quotation marks. Tell me about the colour. Uh, How do you describe the colour? Because we'd originally looked at brass. Brass as it comes out is pretty golden in colour and then you let it patinate and the rain will gradually brown it off, dull it off until after a year, two, three years it goes sort of chocolate brown and depending on where the sun hits most, where it rains most, there'll be some variation. That's what we took through the planning department. So after planning, when you then tender it and the contractor says actually I have a supply chain that wants to use aluminium instead of brass, well then you have that conundrum is not brass. Uh, how do you achieve the same finish that you've then got through planning? And planners had their own ideas and we pretty much tried to satisfy that. So it's the brass patinated texture and colour that we've achieved. You've in introduced some kind of black, blank windows. Blind windows. Blind yeah. windows. Yeah. yeah, there you've got a, a staircase with a blind brick wall. <laughs> and there were windows there. And actually, if you just left it as plain sheet with no articulation at all, it'd look odd, it'd yeah, look unsatisfactory. If you're going to lie, you're going to keep on lying. Absolutely, yeah, once you started that. <laughs> that's the... Uh, yeah, you're going to keep it up. That's the secret. No, that's, that's one of the secrets of my success, personally. So really, yeah. the bones are simple, cheap, low cost, and uh, still work today. Yeah, so you could just leave it alone. So the fenestration patterns are quite different. Yes, exactly, because there were four different buildings on this facade, so you then somehow mimicked what, what had been on here. And if you look carefully there, yeah, you can see the detail that have slipped or disappeared or forgotten. Misremembered. Some of the dormers have got their bits missing, corners missing. You can see right at the top, that would be an entablature. It's the last sort of parapet entablature, so broken. It's a 16th century architect called Giulio Romano. 
his surname's not actually Romano, but he became known as the Roman because he'd studied in Rome and gone to Florence. But by that stage, what we call the Renaissance now, had been already going for 150, 200 years. So you can imagine multiple generations of it. And by that stage, he's saying, I own this language, this classical language. And the villa, the Palazzo del Te, was for a client who liked humor. He built this palace. Giulio Romano, with him, then decided, we're going to break bits of entablature. So as my guests come to the building, is this building actually falling apart? The column seems to have got a piece missing. The arch has got a keystone that slipped precariously. It looks like it's going to fall on my head and the whole edifice is going to come down on me. Bits of um, uh, um, pediment and um, entablature are actually not just slipped, but actually pulled out entirely. And that's where he would stand, looking down into the courtyard, where there used to be a maze. And the idea was his guests would arrive, their horses get taken away, the carriages and horses get taken away. They'd have to get into the maze. He'd stand there with a bottle of wine, scolding them for having taken the wrong turn in the maze. And if they never made it to the front door, back they went. <laughs> so well, yeah. These are not new. People keep experimenting with them. And there's a furniture maker who, I guess it might have been early noughties, 2000s, uh, glitched it in the 3D model and then had it printed, made. Yeah. 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 And you look at it and you think, well, it's a physical reality, three-dimensional physical reality. And your first look is, oh, it's clearly a digital um, image, but it's not. And so there's a long tradition of people just fiddling, glitching, just like Giulio Romano. So tell me, you were showing me a picture there of a project which is in your croquis, which yeah. was recently published. Yes. Tell me about the project opposite Hyde Park that you worked on. Was this when you first worked on Fast History? And that was the first. That sort of came out of initially from very pragmatic reasons. We've been working on the floor plans, the section, the outlook across the park, the fact that it faces south and has uninterrupted views, fabulous. But of course, constant solar gain all year round, plus buses going past, a high street with lots of tourists on it. So lots of overlooking and privacy issues and solar gain. So on a very pragmatic level, we're already introducing nice big louvers and light shelves to keep the sun out, to bounce light deep into the plan but also then screens slash louvers for, for privacy purposes, which affects outlook as well. So how to deal with that? And while that was going on, another team in the office were digging into the historical context. And, and that normally means walking the streets, as well as looking in the archives of buildings that had been there, and neighboring buildings, the development of the area, anything that might help give us some grit. What we found was a building by Muse Davis, who are architects of the Belle Epoque era and had built the Ritz Hotel, various large Baroque-style Belle Epoque buildings. And this was a very small one, two bays wide, beautifully detailed and very rich materials. And you ask the question, why does this one stand out compared to everything else, which is pretty much spec development of that period. And it's because the Prince of Wales at the time had used state money to build a house for his lover, Lily Langtree, the musical <laughs> actress. So it was the love den. And there's lots of clues still there with royal regalia and um, symbols and shields and coats of arms on the ground floor and in the, in the stained glass windows. Plus the bar is a mini proscenium stage with royal boxes. So there was something very interesting going on. <laughs> But the building still exists, and you say you have a thought experiment. Imagine if Muse Davis had actually completed the full urban block, as they normally do for the Ritz, for instance. What would that have looked like? And if you analyse their buildings, they're pretty much bay-bay, cut and paste, across the entire facade, turns the corner, 
and then they'll do special end pieces and sensual elements reasonably straightforward so we did that as a, just a thought experiment keep ourselves entertained and realize ah this is interesting if our facade is already looking quite heavily horizontal with these mesh louvers and light shelves and you're standing back and it's actually just mesh. Why is this this Muse Davis project, which would have been stone, not just mesh? It does all the privacy, the solar gain, but actually, intriguingly, if we built the Muse Davis today scheme, I, the sort of false history, we're opposite the Royal Park, which is led by then Prince Charles. Interest group would have been thumbs up. <laughs> conservation officers, that historic England, everybody would have said thumbs up. So that thought experiment ran and we realized, why don't we rebuild, not rebuild, but invent a, a, a history that never existed. Everybody would love it. Everybody who expects some terrible modern monstrosity that's going to ruin the park would desire that. And of course you question, why do they desire that? What, what is it about us? And it's not just London as a, or the UK, it's across the world. We look to the past and we, we think somehow the past is always better. And it's that nostalgia is often false, that deliberately strips away what had been the past, romanticizes it. We don't want to understand or remember the horrors that were the past, <laughs> living in working conditions, political conditions. And so we thought actually it's a good story where we're using the very pragmatic purposes of the perforated mesh uh, to suggest the past, the belly pot past, that never existed. And surely, yes, from the park, it looks solid and established and then melts into air as you approach it. Just the illusion, the mirage of this established good past. You were not able to build that. We had to put the idea on the shelf for a while because it was a good idea, we thought. We'll have to reuse it. But then there was Upper Street. How did you go from Hyde Park? That was the competition. I think we were given two weeks. A client told us, look, this site was bombed during the war. You've got two weeks to come up with an idea. Uh, two weeks? Okay, how about we just come up with a strategy to rebuild what was there? Oh, I like that. We'll get, definitely get planning approval for that. Rebuild what was there. But of course, not rebuild. Exactly the same. We pulled out the idea from Hyde Park, except this time, instead of being of completely false memory, it's actually the memory of the building that was there. But then how do you treat that? What material? Initially, we had two weeks. We said, we'll do it in our perforated bronze mesh. And he liked it and selected us. We then had our first hurdle conservation officer who's ex-historic England was worried. We were probably not very sophisticated in our presentation because it was going to be operable mesh. It was a solid facade with no window openings in it but mesh. But when you're in your apartment or, or retail space or office space in that building, you could pull a lever and the mesh would concertina bifold into a giant louver across your window. And we were probably naive on how it might be received because of the conservation guidelines written in Islington originally and then disseminated across the UK are look at your local materials, your immediate materials, and mimic them. Respect conform and mimic. Those were the words used. Uh, so we had this conversation, we tried to anyway, with conservation officers saying, really, these words were written in the 70s. Socially, would we use these? Would I ask you to conform to me? If, when you say mimic your neighbour or conform to your neighbour, supposing your neighbour is of a particular personality you do not want to mimic or conform to, <laughs> you might want to challenge that, even if it's in conversation and dialogue with your neighbour. I don't understand what you mean, I mean, just please make it look like your neighbour. Conform, please. No! <laughs> I've got problems with my six-year-old who doesn't want to conform. And of course, a six-year-old comes out in you. <laughs> I do not want to conform! We had a dialogue and eventually we suggested 
to the conservation officer, okay, we are conforming. We are conforming. Look, it's Fayons. Same colour, exactly the same building. It's a mirror of the other end of the terrace. And he was happy with that. What we hadn't told him was we're now casting this. Fayence is baked in another. It then has to be suspended from substructure, which then has to be bolted back to superstructure. It's all extra material, extra cost. Slightly absurd. And we said, why don't we just make the facade load-bearing? So we're going to cast it, pour it on site, like concrete. Day pours every meter or so, every day, yeah, across the entire building. But we'll make it a two-skin one, so it's cast on the inside, cast on the outside, cavity with insulation. Tie them together, and the two act together as superstructure. Mm. With faience. We told him it was faience, and there's lots of scaffolding. We're pouring this stuff on site, and the reason we chose poured material, so effectively we're in-situ concrete, if you go for fair-faced concrete, people expect perfection. And this is ever since Tado Endo introduced the idea, reintroduced the idea of beautiful fair-faced concrete. And people forget, in his early days, it was quite badly put together. They didn't quite know what they were doing. And the reason it was beautiful was the sun would hit it and show the imperfection, not just of the concrete and the aggregate itself, but actually the formwork. The formwork was not perfectly supported, so it bellowed under the pressure of the cement. When you took the formwork off and the sun hits it, it looks like gentle pillows, like a giant duvet up the building in, in, in concrete. And of course now everyone's obsessed with perfection and you don't get that bellowing, you're not meant to get grout, but you do. So 25% of your fair face concrete budget is actually a team coming in afterwards and doing makeup, painting it to look like perfection. It's absurd. So we said there's something quite intriguing about the fact that you pour this material and it's flawed from the outset. And maybe that's part of our narrative, that we're pouring this material in. It is flawed, just like the narrative of this monument to the past, the building that we're representing, this casting, like a bronze casting of a statue. Except here it's this terracotta cement mix. The narrative is flawed, the material is flawed. The way the casting is made with a crude routing tool, because that's cost-effective as opposed to a tiny routing tool that takes twice the amount of time and then costs twice as much tells us it's made today because that's all we could afford. It's also flawed. The translation of the computer model to that routing tool is actually often a glitch in it, and it's a total mess. The ionic order has vanished and reappears somewhere else in the model. People are getting really upset, saying, oh God, I'm really sorry, I'll redo it. No, just leave it alone, because those series of flaws tell us nothing is perfect. It tells us the narrative of these idealized monuments. They have to come down. <laughs> Uh, it was good that we got pushed away from the perforated mesh in that one and just explored another material and how that material can then reinforce that idea. Of a false translation, of a, or a yeah. series of translations yeah, from exactly. a misremembered past. E edited narratives, why are you editing so you've not yet done the perforated mm, brass, mm. but you've got close to... So that's our first go at it. And of course the client's nervous, ultimately. There was a lot of editing of our editing. There's too many drop pediments or panels. Six year old pushing those boundaries. Come on now, stop your nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> Client tightening those boundaries. You describe a system, the picture you paint is you're producing the work which the system of conservation, and behind that, a social and political narrative about mm. how we relate mm. to our past. Currently, UNESCO has guidelines on working with a culturally important fabric. And where do those originate from? From the Ruskin period. 
Ruskin's, who would, for instance, vehemently argue with Villa Le Duc, whose philosophy was prevalent pretty much everywhere, which is you come to the old stuff and rebuild it as you see fit. And if you want to rebuild it in a way that you think ought to have been the case, why not? That's Villa Le Duc. For instance, Carcassonne was a ruin on top of the crag, and he approached it and effectively he created a Disneyland, a place that never quite existed as it had, but it's still a tourist attraction. And Ruskin's point was you shouldn't be doing that. You should actually leave the stones where they are, as it were, take the rubble away, and whatever new, if you decide to inhabit that, extend it, rebuild it, rebuild parts of it, then bring new stones along. It might be stone, it might be another material, but then there's obviously a transition between the two and then celebrating the fact that new generation has come along. And his argument was that is the history of all building. We don't demolish, rebuild in a fantasy of what was. We add. We don't waste the stones that exist there. You're describing Ruskin in a way that I've not heard him describe before. He sounds like he's completely comfortable with accretions and additions. Absolutely. Le Duc was a bit more brutal about it. Everybody was more brutal about it back then. They would say, like, why don't we just demolish this entire wall and rebuild it? and put crenellation turrets and finials on something that never existed in a fantasy of the past. While Ruskin would say, why are you doing that? Leave the wall as it is, and how do you want to inhabit it? Do you need finials and stuff that never existed on there? The difference is that Villa Duke is doing it to pretend that that's what existed. Ruskin's arguing, what do you want today? And if it is finials and turrets and crenellations, then they ought to fit with whatever program you have that day. What, what, what Ruskin's arguing is that if you do demolish and totally rebuild, you've lost the visible tooling of the craftsmen and the people that were there before. So it's taking a book and deciding, I want to rewrite it entirely. So Ruskin's argument is if you want to add to that book, do. But then at least the original text is there, because that's what inspired you in the first place to spring from, or criticise, or work with. We've joked about the fact that you've described as a false history. It's almost mm. like you're okay, I've got to pay lip service to this whole thing. To which the question might be, why bother? If if it's false, Mm. why bother paying lip service to that? Why why not have the modernist pro tabula rasa, let's start again? And you just intimated the idea of, use the word, which I think is really interesting, comfort. There's comfort. We, We all desire them. I suspect it's completely universal across the globe that there's comfort in the past, looking to the past, thinking it was better, which uh, the criticism is you might think so, but it wasn't. We've got better working conditions, living conditions. Things on the whole are getting better. And to look to the past and say it was better back then is delusional. So those false facades, they're suspended that, that melt into air, as it were, are critique of that feeling, that sense of nostalgia. And you can argue, yes, we're having it both ways. From a distance, it's giving people that comfort. It certainly ticks the box for a conservation officer who's not looking too hard, thinks, oh, I'm getting my, my, my original rebuilt structure here. Most of them are intelligent enough to have that conversation and understand it, and they realise there's a sort of sense of wit and criticism there and have, having some fun. Uh, and I'm not suggesting we rebuild everything every new building does that because the joke will wear thin pretty quickly yeah if you think about how some streets so the street we're in at the moment Clockmore close uh, a lot of it was demolished in the post-war period it hadn't been all bombed it was just demolished for new building and then come the oil crisis that that, that, that the program 
for rebuilding the entire street in concrete with brown glass, giant brown glass office blocks, stopped. No more building for a while. In the intervening period, conservation guidelines came in the first ones. So this is conservation area number one. And those are the first ones that said conform, mimic, look for prevalent uh, materials and use those. So the new buildings that came then in the late 70s and early 80s are, are attempting to look at um, Georgian and Victorian buildings but using modern bricks, the cement mortar, modern window systems and not even attempting in a poor way mimicking what's there in the past but satisfying conservation areas as for officers who ultimately think, oh, this sort of looks like the past. It respects and conforms to the past. But in my opinion, one, it's watering down the proportions, the material, the social history of that part, and then miseducating anybody who's walking down the street who looks at these buildings. And sometimes you see these um, tourist guides pointing at a 1970s building and saying, this is Olive Cromwell's house. Because Olive Cromwell's house had stood there, but obviously disappeared many years ago. And people were slowly being educated that this 70s, 80s, poor mimicry, which is still brick with cement, but the wrong colour, wrong proportions, and doesn't bear any resemblance to any load-bearing elements. It's a miseducation, uh, and why would why would we want why would we want to do that as a culture? Generally, we wouldn't do it to music, we wouldn't do it to medicine, sciences, the arts. We wouldn't want to keep saying we must conform to the same painting method, the same sculptural method, the same medical methods, the same scientific methods, the same music methods. And all we're doing is derivatives, the same derivation again, again, derivations of derivations. Would you prefer to exist in a planning culture where anything goes? Are you just a truculent teenager who's just, no, there are no, some no, rules no, no. and... No, the game playing no, is, no, you're yeah, playing games and it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's, yeah. but I wonder... It, but you can see from this building that I we're in, yeah. it is not the mimicry, we're not playing and having a, a witty critique of conforming. We're actually deliberately doing something that's dramatically different from any of that by simply just stacking giant blocks of stone like Stonehenge in the middle of the street, referencing that to the very original buildings that had been on the site, the stone buildings that were load-bearing. And there's our connection. And those conservation officers and planning officers understood that. So there, that dialogue with them, saying that this is how our building has a more authentic connection social history and is innovative in that action as well as in its material assembly. What it sounds like we have is there's this nice slippage between a social history which is like social need Absolutely, and yeah, architecture yeah. is an expression yeah, of that direct yeah, need yeah, and yeah, architectural yeah. history which yeah, is a kind yeah. of series of manners and formal gestures. Yeah, well, you hit an interesting point. They're ultimately connected. They're obviously the, the one drives the other and yes, of course, there's a feedback at some point but if we look at the first crisis in architecture. And why does that crisis occur? So this is a period of the early 19th century. Sorry, I'm about the sound of the people yeah. above. Um, Where are um, we? Go, go up and say, can you keep it down? Go on, go on. Upstairs. Shall I make another coffee? about when coming, I didn't yeah. get it. Kamunna's your proto-academic uh, undertaking research, funded research, 
uh, also the father of archaeology. So essentially he's the father of art history as we know today and archaeology. His grand tours, funded by his patrons, are research-based. He's going to these archaeological sites and not just simply digging up stones and sculptures and taking them back, but he's mapping the ground on which they're found and then estimating their timeline, where they fell, redrawing it as urban plans as well as buildings. So he's responsible for the chronological order of art and architecture history. Yeah. So 200 years before Vinkerman, the book on your library shelf on art history or architectural history it was Vasari's The Most Excellent Artists, Sculptors and Architects. And that specifically talks about the identity of an individual. They were apprenticed at the age of 10 by this person. By Leonardo da Vinci picked up this person at the age of 10, trained him, they became most excellent and they got their own patrons, became masters, seven years of apprenticeship, and they might have swapped from one to the other and got another masters in sculpture than architecture, for instance. Why they were most excellent, so it's a personal history and the idiosyncratic art and architecture of that person. So Vasari would say it's the idiosyncratic manner and he argued against the collective noun style. All these people are undertaking the style. Actually, it's the manner. You contrast Vasari with Winkleman to critique Winkleman. Why? Because ultimately the, we're heading back to the failures of, of understanding what architecture is. Still today, we then have to conform, respect, mimic. Kuhlman is the first one to actually put in chronological order and create a taxonomy, and that's very useful. That's how we progress and understand and criticise and move forward. And, of course, that usefulness overshadows Vasari's. And that's mostly because Winkelmann is a proto-academic. He's not actually an architect, sculptor or artist, unlike Vasari. So he doesn't understand fundamentally that the buildings he's looking at come from materials, materials that are assembled in a particular way to stand up. And part of their form is a result of that structural assembly, the most efficient way of structurally uh, assembling those materials that then become culturally emblematic. After one or two generations of people working in the neoclassical style, you have some of the first crises, for instance. Karl Friedrich Schinkel, who's the master of the neoclassical, he's a self-promoter, everybody on the continent knows who he is. He's printing and sending those prints out to everybody. He's fantastic at drawing, fantastic with the neoclassical. He is sent by the Prussian Crown Prince to London, to look at the British Museum that's going up. The museum in Berlin is being planned, so Schenkel's going to be responsible for that, see what the Brits are doing. But the Crown Prince says, look, after you finish that, go on a tour of England, Scotland and Wales, because they're industrialising, they're becoming incredibly wealthy and powerful, and they're building an empire. How are they doing that? Please go with the Prussian Council and go on a tour, effectively a spying mission. Make as many notes and drawings as you can and bring that tech back. And we're going to take that tech and become equally powerful. And during that talk, Schinkel has a crisis because he suddenly realizes these fantastic new factories and warehouses, new urban plans, bridges made out of cast iron and wrought iron, buildings made of brick, stone, timber, iron, strapped together. They've got no reference to the neoclassical. Why? They're just ploughing ahead. I'm losing my relevance. Anybody working in the neoclassical has no relevance to this new age, this modern age. What is going on? He's already quite old by this stage. He asks a young architect that he's working with, Carl Bertiker, can you find out? What I've seen in England is things are being made out of necessity. The materials are being assembled out of necessity. And yes, sometimes they're contrived to look classical, but really what's holding them up, how they're assembled, is doing the business of expressing the architecture. And Carl Bertiker 
undertakes a study of the neoclassicals. That's still the drive of the architectural language. And he comes back and says, you're right. Even the classical language had its origins in structural assembly. And he defines the word tectonic, the tectonic assembly, that the classical language would have been timber, timber pegs, split timber beams, pegs and beams. All these then become the motifs, what we think are just abstract patterns, but actually they're there to hold a building together that then became extracted in stone because they were, they were important symbols of temples and buildings of state, the Greek culture. So it didn't matter that they're now stone because they just represented the temples and buildings of the past that are still important to them today. Arguably, they're no relevance to us today. We're now living in the modern age. Why are we building temples that were to Venus and others when really we should be building to what our needs are today? His student picked up the same work, so that's Gottfried Semper. And so we're Karl Bertica saying we have the, the tectonic assembly. The, kunst, the Kern form is the structure, the form driven by the structure, and the Kunst form is the artistry. Semper picks up on that and says, yes, the artistry is ultimately where joining and binding of these materials becomes commonplace. This is the most efficient way of doing it, or most symbolic way of doing it. Repeated again and again, it becomes the completion, the cultural completion of that tectonic assembly. And that's repeated again and again because it rep is representative of that particular culture in time. And so we need to find a new language, architectural language, of these new materials, of our new world, of our new needs. We got onto that because I was asking you about the slippage between social history and architectural mm -hmm. history. Yeah, so with that, the failure to find anything carries on. And what you ask yourself, why is there a failure there? Bertica and Semper had said it, the assembly of those materials is what drives the architectural language. So it's the assembly of those materials, but the choice. Who is the social history of the people who are demanding something to be built? The architects who are working with them, i.e. the master masons that become the architects, are working with them to build that. The two are the history, the fabric of that society. They should be putting stuff together that is representative of their age. And they're not standing back and uh, consciously doing that, saying, oh, we're creating something that's emblematic of our age. They're simply saying, oh, what's, what's your demand? What are you after? Okay, as it happens, we've got a new material that can make this a bit quicker, a bit easier. Are you happy with that? Yes, I'm happy with that. Repeat that again, and suddenly you've got something that represents the age. And you argue today, we've got plenty of crap, and that represents our age. <laughs> the reason why, it's, why we've struggled is because the education system changed at Winkelmann's point. When Winkelmann said, we just m must be like the Greeks, draw like the Greeks, build like the Greeks, it was no longer, literally, we were the first to do it in this country because we were industrializing, there's vast amounts of building going on, and wealth. All those kids, working-class kids, for instance, who became Sir John Soane, owned two houses in one of the most wealthiest parts of London, became incredibly wealthy, could afford to buy a sarcophagus from Egypt that the British Museum couldn't afford to buy. His dad was a bricklayer. All those architects that we look at back today the, the, were working-class kids who gone through the apprenticeship system and during the wealth creation of that period became incredibly wealthy. And they're going to lovely parties, they're not sitting in a pub drinking ale with all the other builders. Now they've made it. They're not the normal master masters. They're now architects, master mason architects, and wealthy. Lovely parties, and hello, and who are you? You, you can cultivate your accent, but once you tell them you're an architect, oh, trade, trade. <laughs> 
they quickly found themselves and uh, were now a different class. And they create the Architects Club in the middle of Piccadilly. You can come to us and we will tell you who are architects. And they actually said, anybody from now on who goes into, into trade, i.e. learns, just like they did via the apprenticeship system, is banned from calling themselves an architect. From now on, the education will be sitting in our offices and redrawing them the classical orders. Yeah? That, that, that separation of learning with your hands, the material technology, and then drawing, splitting it. So it exi always existed. That separation then is the re what's resulted is that the understanding of architecture is drawing, a style. So in effect, the noun is now driving the verb. Well, it should have been the verb defining the noun. We're no closer to answering my question here. Really? Okay, let me put it another way. We... We're still ignorant. The architectural community, uh, and, and therefore everybody else, is still ignorant about what we're looking at, what, uh, what is the definition of architecture. We're still thinking it's just images of a facade that it defines the architecture. And that's because we're not trained to think of it in any other way. So if that ignorance... So if, if you remove the vocabulary, half the vocabulary of our language, how can we talk? With that missing vocabulary, we can't. And that's what's going on at the moment. Everybody, you, me, uh, the entire uh, population are working with half the vocabulary because we dispensed with it in 1790 onwards. And we haven't got that back. There was a 13-year period when the Bauhaus was created, a short period where the Bauhaus decided, you know what, we're going to reintroduce that. Material tech and drawing and ideas, just like the Vasari period, the Renaissance period, as it were, you will work with materials and ideas and see where that leads. In 13 years, you've got a Vasily chair, I use as the example, where everything up to then, no one would have created the Vasily chair unless people were working with current materials and in it with a sort of artistic intention as well of experimentation. Otherwise, you would have just reproduced classical or Gothic style. In your work, what is it? Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. You're paying lip service to a culture which focuses on that facadism. And the the seam in our work that does that does exactly as you say. Yeah. It's playing with the the classical language, but that's why I mentioned Giulio Romano earlier. Mm -hmm. So Giulio Romano, even in the 16th century, so that's 150 years, 200 years of Renaissance, effectively. He says, "I'm taking ownership of this. I'm playing with it. I'm corrupting it. I'm subverting it. I'm having fun with it." Yeah. That is not to say I am reproducing in a pseudo-authentic way what was the classical language to make somebody's house of elements that would have made a temple. I'm just playing with it. And that's all I'm saying. We're, we're playing with it. We're having some fun with it. It's a fake nostalgia, a flawed nostalgia. And that's emblematic of us at the moment, isn't it? Yeah. That's my answer. That's very good. <laughs> I'll stretch out my question whilst you meet that. Sorry. <laughs> is that on the nice, mic? Can the you way? hear that? Can you? <laughs> it's very nice. What is it? I don't know. I found it in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> it's really. It's got vanilla quality. Yeah, it's, it's a like... croissant with vanilla in it. Well, no. More, more bready than quite oh, yeah. yeah. very good wherever, you, wherever, yeah. wherever you found it thank you I'm sorry I ate most I'll, of it I'll get another year. one there is another one there is another one there um, you we were it should be clearly stated we've talked about false histories and we've talked about three projects and they are within your work as, as you, I think you used the, a strain or a scene, yeah. and there are other things. It's mm -hmm. one, one, mm -hmm. one approach. One. How does it fit in? How, perhaps you could just well, describe how, the, how it might fit in with the other. You have to too. remember, there's we're group work. There's a number of us, yeah. and every Friday we pin up and um, discuss projects and see where they go. And so it's lots of floating ideas, lots of input, and so 
Yeah, every project ideally is completely different from another, but sometimes there are themes in the way you think, actually, this idea has got quite a lot of mileage, you know, where it can change in all sorts of ways and, and reappear on another project slightly differently. So I think that the idea of memory, past, emblematic architecture that can be repurposed has got some mileage, so I'm not quite sure where. But we've already got some other ideas that we haven't yet used. <laughs> I like to, yeah, so we, we'll probably carry on with that for a while. We live in strange times. There's Amin there explaining our fixation with history through history. I do like listening to his description of what an architect was and what an architect is and what an architect can be. Every time I grow pessimistic about the way the art form has collapsed into empty activist gesturing in some quarters, I think of Amin and his work and think of all the others like him. Men and women who were, as the Belgians like to say about themselves, born with a brick in their stomach, with an urgent desire to build, to understand how to build better to make places to live, work and play in, but also make statements about our age by understanding the technique and the technology of their materials and their construction process. I'm torn though on the false history thing. I see his deception or playfulness as engaging and funny and stimulating, but even then it makes me worried that we need it to be so. We need to play games. I like comedy and I like architecture, but it's only very rare that they are able to subtly acknowledge each other. Minno, I think, has a unique ability to marry those two things. Strongly recommend if you get a chance to go and see Eight Bleeding Heart Yard. It's near Farringdon Tube Station, just a short walk from there. Worth popping along if you're in London. So, that's us for this week. That's for this year, I think, really. Follow us on Instagram, machine underscore books or LinkedIn. Twitter, we're there as well, but you guys all seem to be on Instagram now. You can follow, like, subscribe us on your platform of choice, and please do tell your friends all about us. Anyone who's interested in the built environment is going to enjoy this podcast. So yeah, the last super urbanism for 2023. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Bye.